I am on a mission, rather a path to discovering the connections of the mind, body, and spirit as it's connected to social justice work. Particularly, I am interested in the spiritual aspect of social justice work. Each episode, I will talk with scholars in various fields who are committed to social change and social justice to learn more about how they see spirituality connected to the commitment of justice and change. This is 824. On this episode of 824, the Spirituality and Social Justice podcast, I am speaking with my former dissertation chair, mentor, and associate professor of educational research at the George Washington University, uh, Dr. Lionel Howard, about his ideas and thoughts around um, concepts of social justice, some of his own research, and the ways in which he thinks about um, broader understandings, larger sort of impacts of, of spirituality on social justice ideas. And within our society, global context, et cetera. So welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. This is a wonderful opportunity to sort of share some experiences and some ideas and some thoughts. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation um, because we've had a lot of interesting conversations over the last seven years, um, mostly within the understandings of dissertation work and work around gender and identity and race. And so I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with you that extends a bit more into sort of the, what I keep calling the unknown of how spirituality impacts people's work. Um, and so I have um, this large interest recently in sort of just reflecting back on many scholars of the 50s and 60s and how they have, how they introduced spirituality in terms of where we need to go with social change. Um, and so I've become very interested in how scholars who are um, engaging in social justice work, racial justice work, um, social change work, whatever that work looks like and how their own understandings of spirituality have impacted them so far and where they, how they see it impacting um, communities largely. And so I'm really excited that we're going to have some time to talk about that today. Yeah. Okay. So right. if you can tell us just a little bit about your work right now, like um, I know about your work within um, understandings of gender frameworks, how we think about black masculinity mm -hmm. um, and how that impacts education attainment. But I'm, I, I want to hear it from you and I want you to tell everybody about all this wonderfulness that you do um, <laughs> race and gender. Yeah, well, just thank you again for this platform to share some of my work. Um, so my research originally started out looking at uh, race and gender, the intersection of those two identities, and thinking about the implications of identity development and socialization for the overall, overall well-being of Black African-American boys. And I was specifically interested in looking at the ways in which schools contributed to the development of these identities and the intersections uh, through the different relationships that the boys encountered in the schools, but also thinking about the ways in which they are socialized in their families, in the communities, and how these different socializing messages contributed to a sense of self and thinking about the implications for academic outcomes, but also their development and well-being as a whole. And so I started off working primarily with adolescent boys, so between the ages of 12 to 16, uh, largely in the high school context, urban education spaces, and uh, spent some time just trying to understand what does it mean to be an adolescent African-American boy in the year 2000 forward. And certainly as an African-American man, um, a lot of their experiences resonated in my own biography, but also in the different men and boys who I know in my personal life, um, as well as my professional um, networks. Uh, so wanted to sort of really 
think about what that developmental time period was like and sort of what we can do to support um, their development. Um, but after spending some time working in the adolescent world, realized that I needed to sort of think about early childhood development, um, simply because a lot of the messaging that happens when we socialize um, our children around gender and race uh, happens uh, very early in life, um, down to sort of the infant years when we sort of colorize outfits and assign meaning to color, gendered meaning to color, right? And children's yeah. boys. And so realize I need to sort of understand sort of what's the thinking that's happening at those early stages of development. So I expanded my population interest to include um, boys who were between the ages of three and eight. So really those formative years of development which are largely uh, gu uh, guided by parenting practices and parent ideology, right? That may also get reinforced in family spaces, community spaces, but also school spaces, but really sort of centering what parents are doing um, to sort of understand what that message is and what drives that messaging. Um, and then thinking about then how do boys, young boys, uh, make sense of those messages? How do you sort of make sense of what's being communicated to them as appropriate ways of being and what that might do to their sense of self and their identity formation? So um, begin to expand the population. So now I think about it more from a lifespan development, right? So thinking across early childhood, adolescent, to late adolescence, to even young adulthood, right? So what happens when they arrive to post-secondary spaces like colleges and universities, right? How are those ideas reified or disrupted uh, as they become um, sort of more aware of themselves and have more agency and capacity to perhaps uh, challenge uh, messages that they received earlier in their lives or to make decisions to really uh, embrace them or to reify those messages? Um, so that's where my work has centered mostly around sort of the gender and race piece um, and the ways in which this is happening in families, communities, and schools. Um, more recently, that work has taken the turn to look at social, emotional learning and development. Um, again, sort of thinking about uh, how are young boys of color uh, learning about their emotions and how do they make sense of what they're feeling um, and how do we as adults and schools and communities and families uh, support that development and understanding? Um, unfortunately, what's happened is we see young boys in particular of color who are grappling with trying to make sense of how they're feeling in the context of school spaces that has led to them being um, identified as problematic, right? Um, and not given the space to try to make sense of what it is they're thinking and feeling. Um, and so as a consequence of being named problematic, it's led to suspensions and expulsions from school. Um, it's really right. great, right? And so this new work is looking at what's happening in the school context that is contributing to the less than desirable interactions, exchanges, experiences in schools for boys of color that continue to frame them as problematic. And I'm really looking at sort of the school personnel and school structures and policies, right? So shifting the emphasis from the boy as a unit of analysis and as the problem, unfortunately, to thinking about what is the ecosystem and how is that contributing to or driving some of the behaviors and actions we're seeing in schools. And so for me, that means looking at teachers, looking at the school administrators and leaders, looking closely at school policy, right? And But then also looking at the ways in which the school institutions, its actors uh, connect with or collaborate with parents, right? And how parents get sort of invited to be a part of the work that's happening or not invited, quite frankly. Right, so sort of looking at what's the ecosystem and how is that potentially the driver of what we're seeing manifest in the classroom for boys of color. So that's one strand of the work um, and it's sort of evolution. Uh, another strand that I've been interested in is um, 
researcher of vulnerability. And so thinking about the ways in which we as researchers who are investigating problems of education um, in its many forms, how we're affected by that research. And then what does it mean for the integrity of the research that we're doing, right? Um, oftentimes, research on communities of color um, are often led by researchers of color, right? Who sort of see these as important questions and problems to address, but who also want to bring a different paradigm to the investigation of these issues. Mm -hmm. And so as a consequence, we are exposed to um, a lot of potential um, traumatizing or experiences that reflect our own biography that may have not been so positive, right? Or seeing and experiencing vicariously the frustration of the people we're studying, whether it's the adults, whether it's sort of the children. And then what do we do with all that, right? And then what does that mean for the work that we're trying to accomplish? And so I've been interested in sort of thinking about how do we support novice researchers and, and that I would also add experienced researchers to really pay attention to the ways they're affected and thinking about real concrete ways to build in opportunities for self-care in this work. And this sort of strand of research is very much uh, informed by activist research, right? The questions about how activists sustain themselves in the work, right? Who are often working very close to the ground, so to speak, um, who are on the front line of a lot of um, issues, uh, how do they sort of continue to do that work day after day, year after year, right? Um, and then what sort of uh, strategies are they sort of using to sustain themselves in this very important work? And so thinking about it in the context of educational research, how do we continue to do this work when sometimes it can feel very, quote unquote, heavy for us? or feel like we're only making incremental gains when we want to be making sort of more seismic shifts in policy and practice and the like. So those are two areas of my work um, that I've been uh, trying to continue to develop. And then the last part is just sort of thinking about research methodology. So thinking about how we engage in the active research, especially research that is supposed to support communities to have a voice and to have agency and power and tools to affect change, right? And so this idea of more collaborative participatory research where we are decentering ourselves as the researcher to really think about how do we integrate as partners the communities which we're trying to support uh, through our research endeavors. And so I've been writing a little bit about that as of late too. Awesome. So um, just to go back to something that you mentioned a bit earlier in terms of um, how you work with some of, of these boys, these men, as they move through higher ed, I think you mentioned something about challenging messages that they have received. Is that <laughs> accurate? And so as part of that thinking about how they've grown into understanding what masculinity is and what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, you know, very early on, they get clear messages about what's gender appropriate and what's not. Right. And part of what my work has shown is that many adolescent boys will um, choose to uh, ascribe to those ideas and messages for the sake of preserving relationship with the people who are communicating them, right? And so I'm not willing to risk that relationship by pushing back against these ideas of, and ways of being that don't feel authentic to me because I wanna preserve the relationship, right? And so as a consequence of that um, uh, a decision or that sort of action, we then sort of can see the implications for one social emotional health and well-being, right? So what's happened is this young person has essentially dissociated from a lived experience, right? And so that gets taken up in one's sort of psyche, one's sort of subconscious, 
right? And could have implications for depression, right? Suicide ideation, um, negative coping strategies and behaviors, right? Because they want to preserve and protect the relationship. But then there are some adolescent boys who actually choose to resist those messages and those way ideas or ways of being that don't feel authentic to them. But they often do at great cost, right? Um, especially if they're in a, um, if there are, if they have less social capital in quote unquote, the boy world, there's a lot more at stake for them. So for example, the young adolescent boy who may not have the athletic prowess, may not be sort of the idealized person or attraction for the opposite gender, right? Or may not be the one who is sort of gifted and talented in other ways, right? Or less popular in school, right? May have more at stake in that resistance because they don't have the other social capital to buffer that pushback, right? And so there are all these ways in which they are trying to be authentic, but may not have the resources and those resources could be the space and opportunity or even the support for being something different than what's being messaged to them, right? And so trying to understand how do they sort of negotiate those, those relationships and sort of what does that mean for how they think about themselves and their wellness? Does that answer? I think that answers your question. <laughs> I think so, yeah. So I guess I'm also trying to make a connection or get a sense of, so as you know, the the intention for this work, like with this podcast, is connected to yoga for social justice. And how do I sort of conceptualize and think about sort of mind, body, spirit practices and um, how that looks in terms of doing sort of social justice work? And how do we work with folks um, who are in sort of different places in their life mm -hmm. to build sort of understandings of how they connect both into the body, how they can start to connect into what you mentioned about social, social emotional learning. Um, and so I'm curious with the, with the boys who are in this research, how they come to frame an understanding for themselves, like what positive masculinity looks like. Cause in some ways, as I'm listening to you, I'm starting to think about, um, a lot of these conversations around toxic masculinity. Uh -huh. Um, thinking about the ways in which people, men in particular, how they are building a sense of what emotion is supposed to look like. Right, right. So I would say, yes, I do think that the, the boys I've worked with have uh, at least demonstrated in some of their interviews to me this real sort of understanding um, of um, a, sort of the prevailing sort of ideas about what's gender appropriate, but also very clear about what's not working for them, right? Um, and also very strategic in how they sort of navigate um, that understanding and those relationships, right? So here's a good example, right? So for example, there's the classic sort of you know, boys should be tough, boys shouldn't cry message that happens very early on in a boy's development, right? And oftentimes this gets reified um, by other men and other older boys, but also by women and girls too, right? As sort of boys should be uh, strong and unaffected and um, not demonstrate high emotion, right? Um, that's a feminized behavior, it seems as weakness, right? So yeah. for some of the boys in the study, they sort of talk about appreciating that message as a way of navigating their environmental context, right? So appreciating that I live in a community where if I am someone who's seen as a cry baby, quote unquote, or someone who is emotional, quote unquote, I may become the target of continued or more um, harassment or, um, uh, or uh, bullying or even sort of just joking of that person. Right. And so they appreciate like that message being communicated as sort of a way to navigate and quote unquote thrive and survive in a context that says that the kind of behavior is not appropriate, but also talked a lot about when it was appropriate to demonstrate emotion. Right. And that demonstration of emotion was often tied to loss. 
grief and loss. And so that was the one aspect where the demonstration of one's emotions was deemed acceptable. So if you lost someone due to them passing away, um, you could demonstrate that public uh, feeling of loss, right? Um, if you were to say, for example, one of the examples the boys talked about was um, if your girlfriend broke up with you, right? Now, the rule would be that you wouldn't sort of emote publicly about that, but you could with your closest friends, right? So thinking about the significance of boys' friendships, where these friendships are held very sacred and sometimes create the space for them to show up in ways that may be counter to what is being communicated or message to them, right? So sort of aware of when and how they can show up in different ways um, around these sort of gendered behaviors or gendered ideas. Um, so I think that certainly happens, you sort of see them wanting to sort of create a space to be more vulnerable, if you will, right? When the world is saying, no, you shouldn't be vulnerable. Um, so you see them sort of navigating these two spaces. Like, I appreciate, I understand the message, but I also know that I need to do this for myself to feel whole. Right. I recognize how, um, how difficult vulnerability is generally, right? Like I have a really hard time with vulnerability and I always sort of make this brush off as like, oh, well, you know, I spent most of my time with my dad. I was an athlete. Um, he was my long jump and triple jump coach when I was like, as a kid, he was the person who always picked me up from school. Um, he's a commercial roofer or was, he's retired now, but I spent a lot of time working on roofs with him every now and again over summers. And so I did build this sort of, uh, sense of, you know, women or girls, uh, in my own mind, right? Like, don't do these things. This isn't like typical quote unquote girl behavior to be laying down insulation on a mm -hmm. roof. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I'm curious in terms of like how we even begin to notice the the senses of socialized, socialized behavior, if there's a way for you to even recognize that there is a socialized behavior happening um, yeah, so recognized by the boys or as the adult or the parent, the girl? Both. Oh, yeah. So um, I would say for the parents and guardians, uh, I think that unfortunately a lot of this is unconscious, right? And, it's, mm. and when I talk with parents and sort of bring their attention to have them think about their parenting, sort of very sort of um, explicit ways, right? Um, what I hear is that there are certain practices that just they just do because, right? This is how I was raised. And so this is what I know, right? And so they draw from their own biography about parenting. And so if they've had parents who message particular ways of being, oftentimes those messages get continued and passed on to their children, right? Um, on occasion, however, you do see where some of the parents um, raise critique of the messages they receive and have chose to do the opposite, right? Or to have it executed in more tempered ways, right? So they're drawing from their own sort of experiences and biographies, but also how they sort of understand parenting in their particular context. Right, so our families were quite diverse in terms of their backgrounds. So a lot of our middle-class families certainly executed more of the um, practices around um, discussion and um, explaining why they are uh, disciplining or having their child engage in a particular way, right? where it felt there was some sense of bi-directional conversation that could happen, right? Um, whereas some of our other families that were in the lower economic strata certainly had a more like directional, like this is what it is, 
there wasn't sort of a going back and forth. And this is sort of a generalized sort of statement, but I think you sort of see some of those differences uh, playing out. Um, and so I, I think that a lot of parents, unfortunately, because of our societal context, are thinking very, I think, acutely about how they raise their sons. And they're thinking about the implications for them when they leave their house. And that continues across the SES spectrum, right? I have to prepare my son to engage in this world who will see him in a particular way. And that way is often in pejorative terms, less favorable ways, uh, and feel very counter than how I see him, right? And who he is. And so some of those parents are way more explicit in sort of their messaging because of that, especially around race, mm -hmm. right? But also gender too, because we sort of appreciate that the black male body gets read differently, right? So you sort of have that messaging. And so I think what happens then on the child's end, they began to pick up on that messaging as they develop themselves, right? Uh, certainly the younger kids don't quite have the cognitive sort of capacity yet to make sense of those messaging. Uh, but certainly by the time they arrive in elementary school, middle school, they're becoming, they're much more prepared or capable of sort of understanding those messages and are often choosing then how to align or resist those messages, right? Um, because it's becoming more pronounced for them, um, even outside the home, but in the school and the community spaces too. So I think that there's probably more of a correlation with parents and the children about when they come to know, right, these messages. And then also on the child's end, when he may choose to sort of uh, ascribe to those messages or push back against them, right? Whatever that may look like. And and so I, I think I heard you correctly that you mentioned some of this is unconscious. Yeah, right. Yeah, so um, I know your background is in ed psychology and there's, um, as you said that, I started thinking about uh, Carl Jung's sort of positioning that the unconscious is stored in yeah. the body. Um, and so as I, I think about this more in a yoga framework, right, and trying to make the connections to the, the mind, body, spirit sort of dynamic that I'm hoping to draw out of this is that in some ways, right, like when there comes to the how the unconscious shows up in the body or even how trauma shows up mm -hmm. in the body i'm curious as to how you sort of conceptualize or think about how we unpack notions of vulnerability to be able to get at um what is stored in the body and how the storing of that does manifest its way into society and or how it manifests or shows up in terms of how we read particular Yeah, no, that's a, um, a great question, a big question, right? So I'll, I'll take on a part of it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Part of, so as I hear, hear the question, I'm thinking about uh, one sort of my own practice, right? Of self-care and spirituality, right? But also how I understand sort of parenting Right. And so I think a couple of things. One, I think through the research that I've done, um, the simple invitation to have parents reflect on their parenting practices is an opportunity to to raise up the subconscious to the conscious. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, because um, we again embody or take in ways of being and acting and thinking uh, based on our own experiences as young people, as children, through our own parents, right? So some of these things are so deeply embedded with who we are that we don't even realize they're sort of presenting in our parenting, right? And it's not until I ask the question, you know, let's sort of think about the decision you made to do X. What's sort of driving that, right? And then it, oftentimes I would hear the response of, well, I'm not sure, right? Um, I just did, I just know that, right? And so my response often is then sort of, let's sort of think about your own childhood, right? Did you experience that in some way, right? Um, and if so, how did you make sense of that? If you could think back to when you were, you know, your son's age, right? Or, or to an age when you sort of 
reflect back on it, it began to make sense to you, or you could put sort of words to it, right? So some of these things are so deeply ingrained in who we are that we just sort of do them in our sort of subconscious act of parenting, right? And so through the research process, again, I can sort of surface that sort of reflection. Um, and what's, what's fascinating for me then is sort of then how I see an expanded frame to begin to think about their parenting, but also sometimes what feels like a greater intentionality in the act of parenting, right? Um, and so I think that those things can come up. And so what I think happens is that now that the question has been raised for them, there's a certain presence that they have that just wasn't available before. And I see that in my own sort of spiritual practice and that one of the things that we try to do in my church community is to be present, right? So always sort of aware of how we're showing up and sort of being intentional in our thinking and in our actions, right? And it's not until we're able to do that can we, uh, one, heal from sort of past wounds, right? But two, sort of open ourselves up to what's possible beyond our autobiography, right? And so I think that is oftentimes a very hard sort of process and sometimes a long process, right? Um, and it's very easy to not be present because of all of the demands that we are negotiating in our day-to-day -day existence, right? That we sort of fall into the routine of life, so to speak, that we sometimes can lose that presence in a way that doesn't allow us to sort of hear ourselves, hear our bodies, right? To sort of recognize when our body or our mind is sort of messaging to us or signaling to us, right? Um, because we're distracted by the other things that are happening outside of us, right? So I got to get to work. I got to get to school. I got to make dinner. I got to buy this. I got to do this, right? That it begins to muffle that inner voice in a way of knowing um, that doesn't allow you to be present. So I do think that that shift can happen, um, but it's, it requires a lot. It requires a level of agency and sort of consistency um, to become better at holding that presence. And I think even as my as sort of a person who practices meditation and try to be more present, it's, it takes me a while still sometimes to sort of really sort of show up, right? And there are days when I'm more present than not. But I think through the practice of meditation, it sort of helps me sort of begin to silence the things outside of myself to hear myself more clearly, right? And to understand where actions and thoughts are sort of uh, 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 coming from, right? Um, and trying to unpack that. Mm -hmm. So there's a level of vulnerability with that too. Sometimes it serves the things that you may not be prepared to confront or deal with, right? Um, or things that just feel comfortable that allows us to sort of stay where we are and we're not ready to sort of address and deal with them. And so I think that we all have a different journey. And when we're thinking about parenting and sort of child rearing, it, pl it plays out, right? And so even our children pick up on our unconscious energy and behaviors, and they're reading our bodies in ways that we may not even expect them to be reading them, right? That sort of energy transference, they sort of pick up on the nuances that you think are not visible or not sort of um, salient, um, and are responding in accordance, right? Um, so I, I think it's, it's a lot happening in that exchange there. So I'm wondering, and, and I'm going to make this assumption for anyone listening, that they might be thinking about how do we um, draw this nearer to the conversations that we are having currently around masculinity. masculinity. Um, how do, how do you even find yourself having conversations about presence and meditation with, within this context of thinking about how we have created, um, notions about what it means to be a man, right? Like, or what right. masculinity. I mean, I think this, in, even beyond just masculinity itself, I mean, I always sort of start with the question of who are we? Right. Mm -hmm. So who are we? Right. So what are the different quote unquote identities that we hold? Right. Um, what are sort of the values and belief systems that we ascribe to? 
and 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 how and how do they come to be a part of our values and belief systems, right? Um, and thinking about the ways in which the intersection of all of our social identities are sort of playing out, right? Understanding that piece. Oftentimes, we don't ask people to really look at themselves in a way that them to really think about how they show up or what sits behind a way of being or disposition or ideological standpoint that they hold, right? Um, and so that can be a very challenging sort of exercise, if you will, right? And some people are able to sort of do that and through that sort of self-reflection or personal reflexivity, begin to sort of see the genesis of certain ways of being and thinking, right? Um, and then can be more conscious of it. And if it's something that they sort of see as limiting and how they want to be in the world, can then begin to take actions to disrupt that, right? Um, or it just helps them to become clear about why they feel or think or believe in a certain thing. and that's just who they are and they embrace that, but to understand where it comes from, right? Um, and so I think that that question is so important and oftentimes within the context of education anyway, we don't ask people to do to do that. When we do ask it, it's very sort of superficial, right? Because there's a great ability in asking a person yeah. to consider, well, who are you? To sort of stand in the mirror and sort of lay bare and to surface up the unconscious, right? And so I think that's, it's a, it's a hard exercise and without the appropriate sort of scaffolding and support around that, um, we can do a great harm to people, right? Um, if done well, I think it allows a person to be expansive and to be sort of so aware of how they are showing up, um, which allows for a greater intentionality in all that they do. Right, and I think that's what I'm wanting to move towards, right? And I think even in my own practice, my own life, thinking about how do I hold that presence and be really intentional about everything that I'm engaged in, what I'm doing, what I'm saying. And so oftentimes you find yourself making those missteps, right? And saying, oh, actually, that's not the best way to communicate that because it's having an unintended consequence, right? So let me sort of spend some time with why I chose those set of words or why I engaged in this activity, right? Um, to understand what may have led to that um, so that I can then be more cognizant of it and sort of have a different response and outcome. So I, I think that's question of who are we is an important question that we could begin to explore some of this with. Um, and I know I've done this through like reflective journaling, right? Where I just sort of take on that question of who am I as a son, right? Or who am I as sort of a black man in America, sort of trying to understand what does that mean for me, right? Because that meaning and the value I ascribe to that meaning will determine how I act going forward, right? Um, and if I want to make sort of adjustments to how I'm showing up in the world, it might be in that reflective conversation with the self, right? And I think a lot of what, and this is just my take on this, but a lot of what is missing from sort of the work that is done within social change or social justice or um, anything with regards to thinking about how people are experiencing this life, that there is not enough that happens within that self-reflective um, practice and that we are missing a large piece of recognizing that any change to be experienced without has to start within. And if I'm not even willing to turn my gaze inward to recognize um, all of the ways in which I have built up resistances or have built up storylines or built up sort of things that allow me to keep from being interconnected, um, that, it, that we're running on a hamster wheel here 
where we're not actually making the changes or make, seeing the shifts that we actually wish to see. Uh, That's right, global. right? I mean, it's, it's easy. Well, maybe it's not easy, but I think oftentimes we start outside of ourselves, right? So let me sort of address all the things that are happening outside of me, right? Because I'm locating the problems or I'm locating the challenges, a lack of clarity, understanding outside myself, right? And then we don't often give the same sort of space to look inward. Um, mm-hmm. And I think because as a society, I think that sometimes we don't value that reflection, right? We sort of say, you don't sort of navel gaze, you don't sort of put yourself out there to talk about things of the past, right? Um, that are definitely yeah. playing out in how we're doing our work, how we're moving through this world, right? And so what I appreciate in my own practice in my church community in particular is this idea that we all have capacity to be present, right? And through small acts of sort of recognition of that or practices like meditation right, or affirmative reading and reflection can help us sort of do that, right? Uh, But you have to have a practice that you go to to sort of help you continue to evolve and to sort of do that inward work. Um, And I think too, quite frankly, sometimes it's very scary to look inward. Sort of see like what's really behind all the things that I am doing because, you know, sometimes, you know, I was having a discussion with someone recently who um, had some um, issues brought to um, his attention um, about how he was showing up in um, different spaces and the ways in which sort of race and gender dynamics were playing out. And this person really having a difficult time with that feedback because it wasn't how he understood himself to be in the world, right? Um, especially as someone who is queer identified and saw himself as an ally to these other marginalized groups, right? Um, and so I think that moment was quite jarring because again, it's counter to how I believe I'm showing up in the world, right? And the world actually saying, no, how you're showing up is quite problematic, right? And so really trying to reconcile that exchange, right? Um, And so having to really, you know, present questions to him and sort of really think about, you know, what are the different identity markers that you hold, right? How is sort of power being negotiated in in those different identity markers, even as someone who's queer identified, right? Let's sort of think about your maleness, right? And how that may be playing out in spaces where you're one of few men or males who may be cisgender males who may be sort of holding space in a different way that dominates other people in the room, right? Um, Think about how your race is showing up the intersection of the two, right? And so it was a jarring and deeply um, affecting um, uh, moment for this person who has spent the better part of their life thinking they were behaving in a way that demonstrated allyship. And for the first time in over 20 years being called to the carpet, so to speak, right? Um, And so that sort of jarring but then that can trigger the need for greater introspection and reflection and thinking about how we're showing up and ways in which we hold power in different ways, right? And that power isn't necessarily a stagnant, right? It shifts, it's dynamic, right? Um, And so we're always sort of negotiating that. And how do you stay present to that shift, right? As you're moving in and out of different spaces and relationships and exchanges, so. Mm And I think it's interesting to consider the note, like the idea of being called to task, right? Like if someone calls you to task, um, that the task you're actually being called to is what you mentioned earlier, which is to stand in the mirror and lay bare, right? And to actually uh, recognize that what you have been staring at might not have been 
again, like how other people were sort of uh, framing or un coming to understand you, right? That there was something else that was hiding in the unconscious that was being presented uh, in, in sort of those dynamics with others. And so I, I do find that to be quite interesting to think about. And so um, how do you, you did talk a little bit about your own practice of self-care and recognizing that your self-care is necessary in this work that you do um, as you think about race and gender and um, ways of being, particularly with Black boys. And, and so I'm curious how, what, what that has looked like for you over time. Like what has your, uh, your spirituality development been like over time? How do you see it even connecting to the work that you do and keeping you going? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And so I, um, I think for me, like the spiritual shift sort of happened like in the mid nineties. Um, I grew up going to an AME church back home. Um, and moved away from home for graduate school and um, wanted to explore a different community of worship. And a very dear friend of mine invited me to her church, which is um, a, a unity church, not a, not a Unitarian church. It's actually a slightly different um, ethos here where we read from primarily the New Testament um, and we sort of bridge that with the metaphysical interpretation of the Bible, right? And so we talk about consciousness and mm. ego and subconscious and sort of think about the different ways in which we might exist, right? Um, and there was a strong um, sort of uh, community centeredness to it. Um, progressive ideology that grounded congregation that resonated very strongly with who I was at the time. Um, and so that I felt more at home there than the church community I grew up with. Right. And so I began to go to this, this church and as a part of their service, they have meditation. And so it was my first entree into meditating. Right. And as yeah, sort of a part of our our Sunday service, if you will, was part of that was meditating. And so we would be participating in guided meditation with a meditation leader or with the minister of the church. And I remember thinking, wow, this is um, different for me, um, but I just appreciated having this space to sort of sit in silence and to sort of be conscious of my breathing and my body and to sort of quiet the thoughts that disrupt that space um, and start thinking about how yeah. then it allowed me to relax my body and to release some of the stress that I was holding, right? Um, having come through a week of work and other things to be in this space where I could sort of just lay all that down, right? And I remember thinking, wow, this is something that I think I want to begin to practice more of. And so I started to do that more regularly and it became part of my daily practice. And I've had more success than challenges with the daily practice. And sometimes it depends on how my life is unraveling. <laughs> but certainly created, yeah. created a space for me that was new to me um, and maybe allowed, allowed me to feel sort of centered and present and also create a space to sort of learn the discourse around meditation and around sort of consciousness in ways that I hadn't really considered. Um, and also felt very unorthodox compared to my home church growing up, right? Um, in fact, I can remember very clearly when my family came to visit, um, them really questioning whether I was a part of a cult or something. <laughs> it was so different and <laughs> counter to how we had, and they practiced um, religious uh, 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 study, if you will, right? Um, and so I think for me, it felt liberating and it felt in sync with who I was as a person, but didn't have the language and words yet to name it, right? Um, so it sort of felt right in my sort of soul, if you will. Um, and so I started just going regularly and I continued to go to that church and became an active member 
um, taking additional classes um, to sort of study um, the Bible, but also different holistic practices to do like self-care and learning about meditation and Reiki and all of these ideas that just were not a part of my vocabulary and toolkit growing up. Um, and so yep. it's become sort of my sacred space um, that I need to be a part of um, as I engage in the work around race and gender, around sort of research and vulnerability, because I take on the energy of that work, which can really, you know, leave you depleted. It can also make you feel hopeless. It can also make you feel frustrated. Right. Um, And so I think that space allows me to have a balance. But even so, beyond the research, it helps me to manage all that is placed upon me as the chair of a department, right, where I'm working with individuals who have a different set of skills and needs um, that often require a lot from me emotionally sometimes, right, to help them navigate their own professional and sometimes personal um, lives. And so that space becomes a way for me to sort of uh, rejuvenate, but also continue my own self-work, right? And so I've always tried to maintain my own self-development and work through my engagement with, with that community um, so that I could be whole to do work I'm trying to accomplish. And so I feel like over the years, and I've now been a member of this church for, gosh, over 24 years now, and so when I moved away from the area, I was gone for about 10 years. I never found another community that was quite like it. And so I would oftentimes, when I would come back, I would make sure that I could come and attend service, right? And so I would drive four hours just to kind of be in that space to feel whole again, right? And so when I returned to the area, it was without question that that was a community I wanted to get right back involved with. And it's since grown. Um, as a community, um, I would even say that the the mission of the church has grown and that there's now a more explicit attention to social justice, right? Um, I think for a while, our senior ministerial leadership um, did not want to engage in that, right? But the congregation really wanted it, wanted us to be more engaged in you know, working towards change and really sort of listening concrete ways, right? So not being apolitical, but really sort of being clear about how do we create a better world? And sometimes that means you have to make statements and you have to take action, right? And you got to sort of stake a claim to affect the change that we desire, right? And so I sort of see this evolution of the community and that has not come without lots of discussion and meditation as a church community right, about the direction we should be going. And so I feel like that space has become my sacred space and what I need to feel restored and whole, um, but also to continue to do my own self-work because I don't feel like you ever stop the work, right? The work continues and you're always sort of discovering things about yourself um, that may require some attention. Yeah, so you you mentioned the word community and wholeness um, a lot in that. And I was wondering, like, so what is the power of community, right? That, And not even so much what is the power of community, but even just recognizing the power of community and that when people do find a community or they come to a community, that they can begin to recognize the pieces of themselves that they have either been sort of pushing aside or ignoring um, or creating sort of barriers around and that there is a very unique development of wholeness that happens when we participate in community, right? And that we are participating in ways that allow us to actually notice the interconnectedness um, that we have, right? Like with other people, but also with, with nature, with, with, you know, the, just the ever present, uh, always already of what exists beyond our physical bodies. And so, um, I, I really appreciate hearing that the, that you experienced. Yeah. I mean, I think that community allowed me to feel connected to 
other individuals who were doing some of the same work, right? And some who were further along in their journey than I was that could serve as sort of thought partners and guides and could um, support you in this work, right? And then some that were new, like me, who were just trying to make sense of all of this, but were certainly aware that there was something happening here, right? And so having that community as well, that I'm not the only person who is sort of wrestling with these ideas or having these experiences and wanting something different, right? And so I think it in some ways validates where you are in this journey, um, as well as a resource for support as you go through it, right? Um, but I also think too, as a community, there's opportunity to really think about the collective use of voice and resources and our power that we may hold as individuals, right? That can be coalesced to affect change in local spaces, right? Um, and so I think that's um, sort of a strength of this idea of community, but also a community that holds you accountable, right? That sort of says, hey, you've not been showing up, right? And so what's going on? And actually, I, I just had someone from my community, church community, um, message me saying, hey, we you in the past two weeks are you okay what's going on right so that community that that's concerned about you and wonders when you're not there right are you okay let's get together so i think that space is so critical because you know i think for many of us who have moved away from our families to pursue careers or education um those uh uh non i guess you'd say blood family members become so critical right um, in ways that help you feel connected and stable and whole. Um, and so this idea of whole is that I can bring my full self there. Like I don't have to sort of differentiate the parts of myself to be considered a valued member of that community, right? And so I can bring all of the wonderful things about who I am and all of the things that are less wonderful <laughs> to that space and yeah. not be sort of judged for it um, or sort of appreciated that we all come with so much texture, right? Yep, yep. Um, a few weeks ago for this podcast, I talked with uh, Mimi Methvin, who was a, a district court judge, federal district court judge for Louisiana. And she um, talked about how like our sense of justice is on the line when we are not aware of what our connection to community is. Um, and she talked about that in terms of like what criminal justice reform needs to look like in terms of black and brown bodies and poor folks. Um, that when we are it, it sort of actively trying to find distance from people that we are, that our sense of justice is on the line. And so I hear that and that's what, what I think about, right? That um, we have to be, that we are sort of called to be mindful of one, our own purpose in this life, but then to recognizing that that purpose is is very much connected right. to what That's justice right. is. And so um, as we start, start to wind down here, I'm gonna ask you a few questions uh, and not questions, but ask you a couple of words. Um, I'm curious what your definitions of these words are um, and, and how they have sort of shown up in your life over time. So what is the word liberation? Wow, liberation, here? that's a big word. <laughs> Uh, liberation yeah, <laughs> for me means the space and capacity to fully express oneself in whatever form or whatever ways or mechanisms that you desire and that it's allows for the possibility of showing up in ways that are expansive and challenge limited frames about who you can be. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. But I, and I think I, I felt that sense of liberation in my church community 
in that way that I can sort of show up and be expansive and engage in the work in all kinds of ways um, that allow me to sort of push beyond the barriers that are placed upon me, right? As a man, right? Um, as mm. the same gender-loving black man, right? Born in a Christian family <laughs> in the Northeast, right? <laughs> yeah. All of these sort of in, in the north, no less. Yeah. All these sorts of, uh, uh, um, um, yeah, all these sorts of factors, if you will, that create to the prison of who you can be. I said, what is healing? Uh, healing is being able to name and understand the genesis of struggle, hurt, frustration, and then being able to engage in ways of being that allow you to move through that understanding to a place of resolution and empowerment. Mm. Um, hmm. yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm sort of lingering on that last word there. So only yeah. because you mentioned this word earlier and um, <laughs> now I'm going to take a page out of Oprah's book. Uh, Ooh, what is, what the soul? is the soul? What is the soul? I know it's a hard question. She literally asks everyone you, that question on her podcast, and so now I'm I'm just gonna ask with you because I you think the soul, the soul for soul me earlier. is the energy that I embody. That mm -hmm. is responding to. The external is aware of the internal, right? And that allows me to feel connected to things that are present, that are in my subconscious. Um, and that allows me to feel like I'm a part of something bigger than just experience right here, right now on this mm -hmm. earth. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And it's the connection to something bigger. Um, yeah. I think we're all striving. Wow, that's a good question. I don't have to. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we had a chance to to talk through some of these ideas and to learn a bit more about your research. Um, this was a fabulous conversation. I think it will give people a lot to chew on when they're thinking about vulnerability, um, connections of race and gender, teachers who are listening, thinking about how they're even mm -hmm. thinking of the bodies in their classrooms. Um, and so uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, well, thank and I think you for inviting you so much me. For this is a you know great opportunity to sort of reflect and to think, right? Um, and I think it just it just sort of fits into my own practice, right? As sort of being present. I think these questions help you to be more present as you're sort of thinking about the work that you're doing, or at least reminding yourself why you're doing this work, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we all so thank you. And I hope this is um, helpful for those listeners or at least raises some things for them to consider. Awesome. So if people want to learn a bit more about you or get in contact with you. Yeah, people, so they can certainly read more. I don't have a personal website, but I have a university website. So you're welcome to take a look at my university website, um, which is um, if you search for Lionel Howard at George Washington University. Um, it should come up in Google, a link to my faculty page. And if you would like to email me, you can email me at 
BLK Educator One at Yahoo.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of 824. If you would like to listen to this episode or other episodes again, you can find 824 on Apple iTunes, Anchor, or Spotify. Your listener support is much appreciated, and if you would like to donate to the continued creation and development of this podcast, you can choose to donate through Anchor. Thank you again for listening, and until next time.